Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, Episode 24, Death of an Emperor. By the late 70s, Vespasian was feeling his age. Fifty-six years of trudging along the Cursus Honorum and beyond, a long series of chutes and ladders maneuvering the ever-changing and at times murderous politics of seven emperors, managing armies in the fields for years at a time, these things weighed down on a man. In AD 79, Vespasian decamped Rome's summer heat for Cotiliae in Campania, famous for its cold water springs, recommended by his old friend Pliny for afflictions of the stomach in particular and the body in general. In Vespasian's case, the spring appears to have brought on a chill and a slight fever. He climbed into the carriage and returned briefly to the city, arranged whatever affairs demanded his attention, then was off to the family estate in Riate. The illness did not go away. Still, and in despite his afflictions, he carried on with the never-ending administrative jobs that are the lot of an emperor. Foreign ambassadors had made the trek from their far-off regions to confer with Vespasian, who made himself available, even as he knew he was dying. There had been omens. The doors of the mausoleum of Augustus had opened of their own accord. A comet passed overhead. Sears took a dire view of these things. Vespasian made a joke of them. The flapping doors, he suggested, were a message for the recently deceased Junia Calvina, one of the last surviving members of the Augustan family, nothing to do with him. And that comet? Stella Crinita, Harry Star. That obviously referred to the likewise recently deceased King of Parthia, a reference to his thick head of hair, as opposed to Calvina, Calva, that is to say, Baldy. As jokes go, these were not up to his usual standard. He was back on form a little later, when the bodily machinery began to break down, causing him to declare, according to Suetonius, "'Dear me, I believe I'm turning into a god,' assuming he actually said it. For literate Romans, the phrase called to mind the line Seneca gave to the dead Claudius in the satirical Apicolacentosis, "'Dear me, I believe I've soiled myself.' Asunatonius might have been setting the stage for the real punchline, which came as Vespasian on his deathbed, cognizant of his last minutes, declared, An emperor ought to die standing. His attendants raised him up, he let loose a violent bout of diarrhea, and expired. Cassius Dio gives Vespasian the line about turning into a god as his last words, and the more dignified modern historians follow suit. As it happened, Vespasian did become a god. Or, rather, his survivors made him a god. Whose idea was this? Of the Julio-Claudians, only Julius Caesar, Augustus, and Claudius were acknowledged as divine, and they at least could trace the family tree back to the goddess Venus. Professional genealogists had affected to trace the Flavians back. They could get no farther back than Hercules, but not even Hercules himself, only a friend of his, very small beer in comparison. Vespasian laughed it off. 
Still, if Claudius could be a god, why not Vespasian? He was, after all, worshipped in eastern cults already. His miraculous works in Alexandria, eyesight to the blonde, possibly a staged event, had helped ensure that. For him to join the Olympians would certainly be an advantage, not only for Rome, but for Titus and any other Flavians who might follow him. Such large questions were set aside for the moment. There was a funeral to arrange. Death for the Romans was a solemn affair, and the near and dear never entirely departed, but watching over, blessing, or cursing if appropriate, the family left behind. Neglected, the deceased forebears could make trouble. Ovid wrote of disgruntled shades whose ancestral souls did issue from the tomb and made their moan in the hours of stilly night, and those hideous ghosts, a shadowy throng, they say, did howl across the city streets and the wide fields. Such things could be avoided with a minimum of effort by offering some grain, a bit of salt, wine-soaked bread, and violets, chiefly on the Feralia celebration, the pagan equivalent of All Souls' Day. This was thought to propitiate them. As to the funerals themselves, then as now, the tone varied depending on the nature of the deceased and the wishes of the family. Jokes are not appropriate to all men in all circumstances. The murdered Julius Caesar does not suggest the stuff of laughter. Consider the funeral of Augustus, the standard for emperors. This was a solemn affair, in which senators vied for position. All shops across Rome were shuttered on that day. Actors wore imagines of his family and ancestors, and other Roman greats were arranged. Senators, hoping to demonstrate their devotion, proposed ever more elaborate addenda to the affair, the outsized statue of victory taken from the house leading the parade, a chorus of patrician children following, singing dirges all the while. The final procession snaked into the forum where Tiberius spoke the eulogy, then out the Porta Triumphalis to the Campus Martius, where the body was laid on a bier. Loyal veterans tossing triumphal decorations, gold and silver included, on top of the growing bonfire. As the flames grew higher, an eagle was released and flew heavenward. Vespasian, by contrast with the first of the Julia Claudians, wanted the Roman equivalent of a New Orleans funeral. The record says little enough about the actual ceremony, suggesting that in most respects it was rote and familiar. If the Flavian tribe, as Suetonius noted, did not have much in the way of ancestral portraits parading alongside the cortege, they at least had a mask for Vespasian himself. To play the part of the deceased, the family hired a man named Favor, the Archimimus, chief mime, one of Rome's foremost comedians. No gravitas in that. Vespasian's sons, Titus and Domitian, were playing to the mob and happy to stress their father's cheerier nature. One ancient chronicler claims that the actor had through a man's whole life carefully observed his carriage and the several peculiarities of his appearance. Favor gave value for money, playing the part for the crowds that lined the streets. 
Rome had had ten years to get to know the emperor and could recognize the walking caricature that Favor presented. Nor was he shy about bringing his betters into the act. At one point, he called out to the magistrates leading the parade and asked just how much the affair was expected to cost. Ten million sesterces, they said. In true Flavian mock horror, Favor shouted back, Give me a hundred thousand and just toss me in the Tiber. Leave them laughing, as the professional showmen say. What might sober historians say? Vespasian lived a remarkably charmed life, the low points not so very low, the high points as high as destiny could reach. As a rising politician, he was marked chiefly by mediocrity, which, arguably, helped him to survive the whims of dangerous superiors. He inspired genuine friendships. His enemies were motivated by ideology or ambition rather than personal hatred. His accomplishments in the Senate, if any, are unnoted, his gaffes spotlighted. There was an element of failing upward with Vespasian, but he was amiable and his failures tended to rebound on him rather than on anyone else. His good nature and ability with a joke go a long way to explain why Nero, in want of a military man on his tour of Greece in 66, chose Vespasian rather than, say, the stiff Galba or the intimidating Corbulo. Corbulo he had killed, by the way, but that's another story. Corbulo would turn out to be Domitian's father-in-law. Small world, Rome. Given his lackluster, even at times poor, performance in his various magistracies, his effective performance as a general in Britain and Judea comes as a surprise. The skills, sets, and attributes of a soldier... Logistics, long-term strategy, tactics, shrewd judgment of subordinates, timing, the admiration of his men, bravery under fire, not losing one's head when all about are losing theirs, are rare. Manuals for this sort of thing existed even back then, but knowledge in theory in any age does not guarantee success in action. That he did not make the army his career after his commendable performance in Britain is interesting. Rome could always use a good general. Military prowess is no guarantee of political ability. The two areas require different talents, only some of which overlap. Vespasian, having made his share of mistakes as a magistrate before going to war, seems to have learned a thing or two and managed the transition. Tiberius, a fine soldier, found the transition so difficult that he all but abandoned the job of emperor entirely. Vespasian, having made his share of mistakes as a magistrate before going to war, seems to have learned a thing or two and managed the transition better. If Stoics and provincial taxpayers found him hard to stomach, and they likely would have found any emperor at that time hard to stomach, the man in the Roman street had much to be grateful for. Jobs, peace, entertainment, a sane ruler with a sense of humor, the sharp end of which he generally aimed at himself. Or was it a facade? Plenty of dirty work was required to get Vespasian on the throne, and plenty more to keep him there, virtually all of it done by other men, not least of all Titus. 
both Vespasian and his brother Sabinus, killed by Vitellius, were described as cheery men, but a happy disposition and a taste for laughter are not necessarily incompatible with autocracy. Vespasian was never less than clear-eyed, someone who had been, quite literally, down in the mud. He knew how tough the world could be. In a world of carrot and stick, Vespasian understood the power of both and was not above using both. To ask, as the Stoics did, and some moderns still do, whether it was proper for Vespasian to usurp the power of the Senate is to raise the wrong question. Ask, rather, was doing so effective? Tacitus, who found the entire system an abomination and had plenty of bad things to say about Vespasian, did grudgingly admit that, of all past tempers, Vespasian was the only one who grew in office. Now that Vespasian was gone to his Olympian reward, could Titus live up to his standard? Could Domitian? The sons of a lucky man who survived a turbulent time, their stories were fated to be turbulent in less fortunate ways. Next time, Titus takes charge. Until then, thank you for listening. And as usual, if you have found this of any interest or use, please feel free to hit the tip jar.